Welcome to Coaching Kidlet, a podcast about writing and publishing good kidlet. We dig into various aspects of writing craft through a kidlet lens and provide inspiration and clear, actionable items to help writers like you move forward on their kidlet writing journeys. I'm Sharon Skinner, author accelerator, certified book coach, and author of speculative fiction and kidlet, including picture books, middle grade, and young adult. And I'm Christy Arros, author accelerator, certified book coach, and story editor focusing on kidlet, including middle grade and young adult. Hey, Christy. Hey, Sharon. How are you? I'm good. How are things going for you? Great. It's another guest month. I'm excited. Who do we have today? Today, we have a couple of kidlet writers who have also written a book about writing kidlet, which I think that's very meta, don't you? Yes. So... Cheryl Malone and Victoria J. Coe are the authors of Writing Kidlet 101, but they're also kidlet writers who have written quite a few books. And I'd love to hear a little bit more from each of them about their background and their writing journeys. So take it away, Victoria and Cheryl. Well, thank you for having us. I'm so excited. And I know Cheryl is excited too, to be on your podcast and speaking to your listeners. I'm Victoria J. Coe. I am the author of nine so far chapter books and middle grade novels. I have been writing for a long time. My journey is a long one. I first got the bug to write books for kids when I was a mom reading to my own children, and particularly when they got to be a little bit older eight, nine, 10, 11 years old, we would read books together. And some of them were books that I had enjoyed at their age. And I started to realize how much of those books were still in my heart. And I started to realize that kids' books are not just books, that they actually, if it's a book that you love, it actually becomes a part of your life. And I started to think, you know, what could be more important than writing books for children? And so I started my journey Little did I know it would take 15 years before I got my first publishing contract. But during that time, I joined SCBWI. I became part of critique groups. I took classes. I went to conferences. I read. I did everything that I possibly could do. And then after many years of submitting and getting lots of positive comments from agents and editors, but not breaking through to that next level... I decided to hire a mentor to work with me one-on-one. I had considered an MFA, but ultimately decided I really wanted the mentoring part. So I worked one-on-one with Deborah Brody, who was the who is unfortunately no longer with us, but was the top editor at Viking and founded Roaring Brook Press, but was on her own and mentoring at other MFA programs when I contacted her and she designed a program just for me based on samples of my writing that I sent her. And we had a very intense year together. And that is what I felt made the difference. And after that, I wrote my, what became my first book, Fenway and Hattie. And yeah, now nine books later, here I am. I met Cheryl later in the 15 year journey. I would say I met her maybe year 13 or 14, but she will tell you her story too. Yeah, thanks so much, guys, for having us. We are thrilled to be here and thrilled to be talking to your listeners. We are very much hands-on, bootstrap people in terms of 
where we come from. Neither one of us is literary or went to college to study literature or to write, although we've both been writing probably our whole lives. So I was a corporate attorney for 25 years, along with raising kids. And I have, like Victoria, I've always had a love for children's books. But about at year 25 of my corporate attorney career, I kind of had, was on on the burnout end of the career. And I ended up taking a class at Lesley University in Cambridge with a professor, David Elliott, who's a very well-known, renowned picture book author and middle grade author. Um, And it changed everything for me. And so I did go the MFA route. I am here to tell you, you don't need an MFA to do this. It does offer you certain benefits. It is expensive. I was interested in getting a fast track to getting to where I wanted to go because I had already spent so much time in one career. But after doing the MFA at Leslie, I taught how to write children's books at Leslie as at the college level. And Vicki, too, is a teacher at the adult education level of writing children's literature. So I did that for four years. And in the course of that, I found an agent. I did finally get a publisher. And I have two picture books published, and I have a third one coming out this year. So I'm more or less a picture book author, although I do write others. I even write adult, working on an adult murder mystery at the moment. But yeah, so we're just plow ahead, work hard, try, try, try again. And we're here to tell you, try not to get discouraged. Everyone gets discouraged, but uh, this is something you can do if you really want to. I love that you said that because I have a lot of clients who do get a little discouraged. And so I have a thing that I tell them, which is patience and perseverance, patience and perseverance. Those are your keys right now to moving forward and to getting where you want to go. It's the quitters who never get published. Correct. And you just don't know which book it's going to be that's going to break through, Mm -hmm. that's going to grab an agent's attention or an editor's attention. And that is why we wrote the book. That's why Victoria and I came together and decided to start a company and to write a book. We took all of our teaching experience. And after all those years, we realized, you know, there are some shortcuts. There are some ways to make the process a little easier. Not that it isn't hard. It's hard for everybody. That is another thing to understand that even the most well-published authors have had dry spells and long periods before they get their first contract. So it's just something to keep working at. So when you got together to write the book, how did you decide what to put in there? That's a great question, Christy. As Cheryl mentioned, we both have taught adults at the collegiate and adult education level separately, even though we were critique partners and friends for many years. We've actually been support partners and critique partners of each other for over 10 years. And we really feel that we have similar mindsets We both have lots of points in common of areas of craft that we're very nerdy about and that we care a lot about. So this is one of the reasons we work so well together, but neither of us is teaching at the moment. Both of us were teaching in-person classes for a number of years, and we have all this material that we weren't using. And last summer, we talked about writing a book together really for all of those people that we used to see in our classes. Every one of them was different, of course, but there were many different backgrounds and experiences that we kept seeing over and over again in our students. And we decided we wanted to teach people the craft elements that we wish that we had learned back in the beginning. And maybe our respective journeys might've been a little shorter if we had, but we also knew 
that the types of people who came to our classes, despite the fact that they made room in their lives to come to an in-person class, were very busy. I mean, let's face it, most people who are writing Kidlet have other jobs and a lot of times have family commitments or social commitments or responsibilities. And so we wanted to create something that was very accessible but very practical, something like a class that you could do at your own pace or maybe do it with a friend. So that was how we decided to come together. Cheryl, do you want to take it from there? Yeah. And what we decided to put in the book is literally based on the classes that we taught. So this idea that if you knew a few things ahead of time, you may not make quite as many mistakes as you would if you're just working on your own in your own home. So One thing that people need to understand is the marketplace. And if you're just starting out and you don't have a handle on the marketplace, you're going to spend time on stories that are just not going to make it. And they can be heartfelt and well-written and you might have some disappointment. So understanding the categories, understanding the genres, understanding not so much what's selling, but what isn't selling what you really shouldn't write about today, maybe a little less of that. So we picked the marketplace, we picked the elements of craft that we thought would help students progress the fastest. So character, voice, scenes, settings, antagonists. We also work in critique groups and I have a manuscript consulting business. And the single biggest thing that people forget is that you need not necessarily a bad guy, but you need something to go wrong in your story or it's not going to be a story. That's a concept that people really don't understand initially. So the topics that are in the book are all those things that we felt students needed to know first. I say it all the time, plot is not just a walk in the park. You said just now something that really resonates, I know with both Christy and I, is the difference between category and genre, because we hear people use that in a way that doesn't really work in Kidlet. So would you like to talk a little bit about it? Because I sing this song all the time, but I'd love to hear (laughs) someone else talk about the difference between genre and category. Exactly. Category has to do with the reader. So if the reader is a young child, the category will probably be a picture book. And in our book, we cover picture book, middle grade and young adult. There are other categories, of course, early reader, chapter book. Those lines are a little bit fuzzy from publisher to publisher, as well as adult, which is a category. We find in our classes, a lot of people who want to write for young adults don't know the difference between the category YA and adult. That's something that I think a lot of people who want to write YA don't know going into it. So genre has to do with the type of story. So whether it's historical fiction, it's fantasy, it's mystery, it's romance, it's humor, whatever, those are genres. And you can even have genres in picture books. So it behooves you to know the difference. So your picture book can be funny. It can be a mystery. It can be a concept book, like a counting book, an alphabet book. Those are all genres. And you said that people don't know between YA and adult, but I also get a lot of people who come to me through SCBWI because I'm the regional advisor here in Arizona. And I know that Christy hears this kind of stuff a lot. I'm writing for teens. Mm -hmm. And they don't understand the difference between YA and middle grade. Absolutely. 
One of the differences between middle grade and YA is the age group, as Vicki said, the age of the reader and what they're interested in reading in. To push on that a little bit, I know you write middle grade, but you also write chapter books and you skipped over talking too deeply about early reader and chapter books in your 101. You went picture book and you focused mainly on novels, middle grade and YA. So could you talk a little bit about that choice? Yeah. Well, the honest reason is that's what we covered in our classes that we taught. We only did picture book, middle grade, and YA. But for practical reasons, I feel that um, chapter books and the early reader categories are so fuzzy. As I said before, they really differ from publisher to publisher, what might be considered an early reader. And believe it or not, my editor just told me a few months ago that they're now starting to call the younger age of middle grade chapter books. So it's really confusing. The way that we define it in the book, because we do mention it, is that a chapter book is very similar to middle grade in terms of the writing, but in a chapter book, it's a simpler story. So typically there is one plot line without subplots. And if it's a series, a lot of times you don't have the same type of character arc as you would in a middle grade novel. Some have no character arc. My chapter books do have character arcs, but they're not the same as a middle grade character arc because in a middle grade character journey, you want the character to start out in one place and end at a different place where they're enlightened, they've grown, they've transformed. In a chapter book, it's more like they just learn something. So maybe they've learned not to judge people or they've learned to be more open about something or whatever, to try harder. It's something much more basic that a younger child who's maybe in second grade could relate to as opposed to something more complex. So one of the things that you both mentioned about writing this book is about knowing the marketplace. And Victoria, you had said how even yourself, you came to this with the nostalgia of books that we read when we were children and they sell, but they're not being written and sold today. And in the book, you have a lot of really great practical writing exercises, and a lot of them do focus on reading what's currently out there. Do you want to talk a little bit more about the use of mentor texts? Absolutely. And I also just want to back up for one second, because this is exactly what Cheryl and I saw in our students, even those who were in their 20s, let alone people who were older, maybe even already grandparents, would come to us with knowledge of the books that they read as a child. And so that could be a generation, it could be two generations ago. And let's face it, the topics that are covered in KidLit today are much more diverse and different than they would have been or that they were a generation or two ago. And also they aren't so moralistic and, and teaching. Some people think of classic children's books from the 1950s or 60s, and they tend to all have these heavy-handed moral lessons, which you're not going to get away with that today. So that was the first thing is that you need to be reading books that were recently published because you need to get the idea from those mentor texts, what's going to fly today. And honestly, I think that is an eye-opening experience for a lot of people who are beginning their kid lit journey, because especially in middle grade and YA, it's like, whoa, these are topics that I would not have read about when I was 10 years old. And now they're interesting today's kids. And of course, with YA, 
literally anything goes. I mean, there is no topic that you cannot cover in YA. And with picture books, the gamut of the different types of picture books that you can find in a bookstore today are so much more creative and imaginative and fresh and unusual and all kinds of different things. If you just think this is the kind of picture book I had read to me when I was four years old, that's not what's being done today. And so we really push the idea of mentor texts throughout. And we do this ourselves as readers. I'm constantly reading the new books that are coming out. There's always something you can take away. If you read with that eye of, I'm a lifelong learner. Oh, look at how this author revealed backstory in a way that really worked or how she brought the cast together at the end to solve the problem in such a satisfying way. So there are all kinds of different things that you can learn from reading mentor texts. And I would just add to that, because it's very hard to give up those old lovable books that we grew up with, I would say that they still do have a purpose. Their storylines may not be contemporary enough for today's young reader in the category that you're going to be writing in. But usually the thing that's made you remember that story is heart. We call it heart. It's the emotional core. There's all kinds of names for it. And if you can read your favorites with a writer's eye and tease out how your favorite author and your favorite book created something that you remember today, and that's what you can apply to the story that you're writing today. Absolutely. Same with our own memories, how we write about being children. For that reason, all those oldies but amazing stories are still very much a part of your library, but the actual plot lines, the actual characters, the actual endings are probably not what you're going to be writing about today. And it might be painful for some of us to think about, but our readers were born in this century and we were not. Yes, yes, it's so true. If you just spend a few minutes with any child who's in the age group that you want to write about, and if you could find out what they're watching, what they're listening to, what their dialogue sounds like, you're going to find somebody very different than yourself. And so why would that person necessarily want to read what you read at that age. Yeah. And just to the earlier point about MFA. So I also have an MFA from Simmons. Sharon has an MA and Victoria, what you did personal MFA, very heavy on reading widely. I mean, that was half of my education in my MFA was reading critically the books that were out there and a lot of current books at the time. (laughs) Wouldn't be considered current anymore since that was many years ago, but I absolutely, I love how you focused on that. And it kind of makes your book timeless too, because at any moment when someone picks that up, they can look at the most current books and still apply the exercises that you put in there. Yeah, definitely. And I love how you talk about the different paths because MFA, MA, the personal mentoring, we as book coaches are trying to give that more intimate relationship type of opportunity for people. Because what we do is, part mentoring, part editorial. There's a lot going on in what we do. And we see that there are many paths to publishing for kids and writing for kids. And really, I say publishing for kids. I shouldn't say it in that order. Writing and publishing for kids because you got to write it before you can get it published. Speaking of which, I know that Cheryl, you have a new book coming out. Can you talk about that? Sure. It's a picture book. It's 
title is Featherita. It's about a little baby chick on the farm, the smallest chick on a farm. And needless to say, she gets into all kinds of trouble. There's a lot of chicken puns in the book. She's a plucky little chick and she gets into all kinds of trouble. And I'm hoping the publisher will be interested enough to make it a series, but you never know. So we'll start with one and see how it goes. And Victoria, do you have any new books coming out? Yes, actually, I have a chapter book series that is in progress. So I have three books out in the series already. It's called Make Way for Fenway. The first two books came out last year, and the third book just came out in April. It's called Fenway and the Loudmouth Bird. And the fourth book is coming out in October, and it's called Fenway and the Great Escape. Fenway is my character from my middle grade series, as well as from the chapter book series. And he is a Jack Russell Terrier. I want to jump off on that and have you talk a little bit about the difference between writing a singular book and writing series. You talked a little bit about the difference in having the character arc and things like that, but what other aspects are very different that you see? Yeah. So I've written two series, as I mentioned. So I have a four book middle grade series and a four book chapter book series. And in my case, they star the same character. So there are a lot of things that are the same and that's not always the way it is. So some series, the story will continue. Like in Harry Potter, for example, you will see there's a large arc that continues over the seven books. And then there are series where each story stands alone, but they all feature the same characters. And we grew up with a lot of those series, right? Like Beverly Cleary's series and Anastasia, <laughs> Lois Lowry's series and all of those books. And those are still very popular today. Look at Dogman, right? Those are all standalone books, but they're the same character. And that's what I write. So each book can stand alone and they don't have to continue. But there's a lot of things that are great about writing a series. And there's also things that are very challenging about writing a series because you have a built-in audience after the first book. And so you need to hit all the same notes in the other books because the reader is going to be expecting them. But it has to be different because it can't be the same story over and over. So in some ways, the world is already built. You already have your characters. You already have your voice. So there's a lot of things that are great about writing a series. But as I said, it's challenging to not repeat yourself. So in my stories, my character is a dog and my stories are not fantastical. I consider them realistic because the dog doesn't understand language and stuff. He doesn't wear clothes or anything like that. He's an actual dog. So there's a limit to how much I can have him learn and grow. But then again, he is a dog. So he does have a change in every story. So in the first story, not to spoil it, but he's very attached to this girl, Hattie. He goes from the need to protect to the need to please. So that's his character arc in the first book. And so in every book, there's something like that. Then in the chapter book series, as I alluded to before, I couldn't really do the exact same thing, but he has one goal. Also, Hattie has a whole storyline in all of the Fenway and Hattie books. It's just that they're told from his point of view and his perspective and not from hers. So her story has to be inferred. And so in the chapter books, that's not the case. It's a simple story where Fenway has a goal. He wants to achieve the goal. And whether he does or he doesn't, the story resolves. <laughs> and that is the plot. And he does learn something, 
but it's not as much of a transformation and it's not as complex as in my middle grade novels. And in those stories, it's the same kind of thing where each one stands alone, but they're all the same type of story. So you just mentioned perspective and point of view, and that is featured in your book. And Sharon and I both liked the way that the two of you talked about that in the book. You want to speak a little bit more about that? Cheryl probably has some things to say too, but I'm going to have to jump back in because this is like my number one passion. My whole life is point of view and perspective. I have been fascinated with perspective since I was a kid and I got that through reading books and specifically reading books from animals perspectives, because that was something I was very into. And I didn't think I would grow up to write a book from an animal's perspective. It just came around that way eventually, because honestly, it is very hard to do. And so when I first started that 15 year journey, I thought, whoa, there's no way I'm even going to try that. But I think that it's fascinating, even for a young person to know that your own perspective isn't the only one out there. Let's face it, that's something all of us need to keep working on. And so I think reading books from other perspectives, whether it's an animal or whether it's a character or a person who lives in another time period than you or a different country or has a different background from you are fascinating ways of exploring perspective. Perspective is the way that the character or the person or the animal experiences the world. It's their viewpoint. It's their way of understanding, their attitudes, the way they communicate, the way they learn, the things that they notice, the things that are important to them, all of that is perspective. Point of view is the way that the author chooses to tell the story, whether it's in the first person, the second person, or the third person, right? And then even within that, particularly in the third person, you can have distant, close, subjective, and We cover all of those in the book. They're very nerdy differences into how you can tell a story. And that's another thing, by the way, that you can really hone in on from reading mentor texts. That's how I learned the different types of third person perspective. I write from the first person point of view, which means that I'm telling the story from Fenway's perspective, but I'm also telling it from his first person point of view, as if I am in his head, experiencing the story, all of his thoughts, his feelings, everything that he is experiencing, I, the author, am channeling right into that character. A cheat sheet that I don't remember if we exactly said this in the book or not, Cheryl, but people can use the terms point of view and perspective interchangeably sometimes, but other times they're actually very distinct. And the way that you can tell the difference if you want to do a little cheat is if you can substitute the word opinion for what you're trying to say, you mean perspective. You don't mean point of view. So I can't say, from my point of view, children's books are the hardest to write. No, that's not correct. It would be from my perspective, children's books are the hardest to write. That's awesome. Literally, point of view is who is telling the story. Is it from inside the character's head? close to the character or an alternative second person or the character talking to the audience. And then everything else to me is perspective and viewpoint. And and how does that work for you, especially with picture books? What is the difference there between that and in novels? Picture books, I would have said maybe a year or two ago, overwhelmingly are third person close. There's a he, she, they, 
they're typically in the past tense, was, played, all that kind of stuff. There are more and more first person picture books today. Federita is in the first person and I love it. I think it brings even the youngest readers closer to the story, but it does have its limitations. So picture books typically are in third person. There's a whole group of picture books that are in the second person. Mo Williams, all the wonderful Pigeon Don't Drive the Bus, and a lot of the meta fiction picture books are in the second person, where the author and or the character are talking to the audience directly, asking them to participate in the story. So everything goes is what is in picture books as well as middle grade, as well as novels. And with elephants walk together, what is that? Yeah, so that's actually a little unique. And so the same with Dario on the Whale, which is my first picture book. I actually used Omnipresent, which is like unheard of. Nobody uses it anymore. Charles Dickens was probably the last person to write in that point of view. But because I have multiple characters and I have their points of view in the story, I have to go back one step further. So in Elephants Walk Together, there's two best friend elephants and their journeys start out together in the story and then they separate. And so the reader has to be able to see what's happening to Precious and what's happening to Baba as the years go by. So I had to step back. So it's me, God, telling the story, which is not common in picture books. Usually it's a close third. You're much closer to the one character, even if you're using he and she and they and all that. And same with Dario and the Whale. It's a two character story. It's a boy and a whale and how they ultimately interact. And so they have their own journeys. Their journeys start apart and then they come together. So it was a little different. That's so interesting because if you had been writing that as a novel, you would have had more options because you could have then told it from first person with alternating chapters. Absolutely. And I think that is something that is such an interesting comment because I'm a corporate attorney. Why on earth would I ever write picture books? How did I ever end up being a picture book author? And yet the stories that appeared to me came to me as picture books. And so that's apparently who I am inside. (laughs) It's really super cool to find that out, to find out what your voice is and what genre you should be writing for. Where does the real truth come out when you write? Is it in books for very little people? Is it for kids who are just starting to explore the world? Or is it for kids who are just about to jump into adulthood? It's a super fun journey to find that out, what's inside you. You talk in your book about scenes. And there's this question and an answer box where it says, how many scenes do you need in a whole novel? And it reminds me of that movie, Amadeus, where he says there were too many notes in the concert. And he says there were just as many notes as I needed. And your answer is, of course, there is as many or as few as you need to tell the story. So one of the things that we see a lot is that writers don't really grasp scene right off the bat. It takes time for them to do that. So you want to talk a little bit about how you approach that? Sure. So there is an MFA-ish definition to what a scene is, although it's not that complete. I don't think it answers the question completely, but it does give you a good starting point. And that is if a character enters a scene That's the beginning of a scene. And then another character joins in, that's a second scene. When somebody leaves, that's a third scene. Um, And so each one of those is a little mini story, a little tiny act that has a beginning and a middle and an end. 
it has a goal, there's a main character, there's voice, there's dialogue, there's all the components that you would put into a novel and it's in your little scene. And if you think of it that way, you end up with a ladder, a trail that then becomes your story. And you, you put these little scenes together, you put these little story pieces together, and then all of a sudden you have a bigger piece and a bigger story. So that's how I would start the description. There can be multiple scenes in a chapter. One scene can stretch for multiple chapters. It starts when somebody enters somewhere, they have a goal, it doesn't end until they've achieved or haven't achieved their goal. And typically there's a nice big zinger at the end of that too, which is what makes people turn pages. And at the end of the scene, something has to have changed. If nothing changes, it's not a scene or you don't need it in your story. And that's something that we have seen over and over again when we were teaching, because we would always have a workshop component of our classes where our students would submit their work. And it was the number one most common thing that we would see is that it wouldn't be a scene. Like the character doesn't have a goal. The character's just kind of like going through life. <laughs> and it's like the reader doesn't know what to root for. And so that's one of the biggest tips that we give in the book when we talk about scenes is that you need to set it up. So the reader needs to know where are we, what's going on, who is there, and most importantly, what does the main character want? Because if we don't know, as I said, the reader doesn't know what to root for. So you want the reader to be invested and engaged and the reader is going to be rooting for something to happen or not happen in that scene. And then of course, you're always going to have surprises. Things are going to go wrong. It's going to be unexpected. You're going to have a twist. There's always going to be conflict. But then at the end of the scene, something will have changed and that change will then drive the next scene forward, or at least part of the story forward. And I love how you point out that picture books have scenes. Mm -hmm. We talk a lot about picture books in the structure and the page turns and how important all the elements are. But I love that you point out that picture books also, if they have a character arc, maybe not concept books so much, but picture books with yeah. an arc have scenes. And I think we don't think in terms of that typically. So I love how you bring that out because I think that's really important. I would say one of the major things we used to hear in our classes was readers need downtime. I've just had an action scene. And so my character is going to get in the car. They're going to drive to their friend's house. They're going to get out of the car and walk up the walk and say hello and then have a cup of tea. But that's not a scene. That's just a waste of time because if the next important thing that happens is two characters are having a cup of tea and there's going to be a major point made in the dialogue, you can put your character directly in the house and just say, hey, it took me 10 minutes to get here. But the idea that you need quiet scenes is not wrong. It's just that you need a goal in the quiet scene. The main character in that scene, they're playing basketball. I think we even put that in as an example. They just need to blow off some steam because something unbelievable has just happened to them. But their goal is to get the ball in the hoop. Their goal is to take five breaths without getting into trouble or whatever it is. They still need a goal. You can have a quiet goal in a quiet scene, but you still need a goal. Or they just have to process what just happened. Yeah. 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 We but love I, scenes. We're all about scenes. In the workshops that I've taught and the clients that I've worked with, we read books as readers. We see chapters. And that's how people tend to think about it, beginner writers. But the concept that a scene is an inherent thing that just is, and a chapter is a construct that the author chooses 
to form the narrative is something that's a little bit more advanced. And when we can break it down and think in terms of scenes, we can see where we came in too soon. We left too late. This is why our story is 50,000 words too long, because we have these things that just don't go when we look at it breaking down like that. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's really well said. So you both have had these amazing journeys and you're both writing these wonderful kids books and doing other work as far as teaching and everything. What brought you together to write this book, Writing Kid Lit 101? Okay. So Victoria, Vicki, my dear friend, 10-year colleague, more than 10 years now, we have been more than critique partners. We've been support partners in our writing journeys. And she called me up last summer and said, Hey, I know you're working on this and I'm working on that, but you know, we've got all this material from all those years of teaching and wouldn't it be fun to write a, a book for people who are too busy to go to classes because there there are tons of classes out there and conferences and we ourselves have been in that situation. You just can barely carve out 15 minutes to write. So, let's take some of our material and see if we can put together a book and that's what we started doing, we started working on it, blocking it out, figuring out the content and exchanging drafts. And then it dawned on us that we needed some support. So you can't just launch a book, you need a company. So we decided to form a company because we thought that there's probably more books we could write and more things we can do to kind of pay it forward. So that was Vicky's first idea was let's pay it forward. We've had some success. Let's see what we can do for other people. Yeah. And it was so fun writing back and forth because we feed off of each other. And we, we've been doing this with our own books back and forth for years. And it was so much fun to come together. And it was interesting because we had to have a voice, right? We couldn't have Cheryl's voice and my voice. So we had to have a voice. And I love the voice that we settled on because it's very conversational. It's very casual and it's very, we like to call it user-friendly, fun, full of personality. And it's very easy to read and easy to understand. And I like the way that you present it. Here it is. It's writing Kidlet 101. And then you have these exercises and then you have extra credit. That made me smile. That made nerd Sharon smile. (laughs) Well, and I hope that nerd both of you like the cover of the book because it is reminiscent of a composition notebook. Yes. Yet it's very whimsical and full of personality. It was designed by our friend Wallace West, who is an incredible illustrator and author illustrator of picture books himself. But it's that playfulness and color. It's not black, it's blue. And I think it says kidlit without saying this is a kidlit composition notebook. (laughs) We tried to keep it as simple as possible. Some of the concepts are hard. Scenes are not easy to understand initially. The whole three-act structure, which we talk a little bit about, is not easy. But there's blocks where you can just read the succinct version of what we just said, and then all the different extra credit and calls to action. We wanted Kidlet to be fun. It should be fun. That's the whole point of Kidlet. You're not writing Kidlet to bring anybody down. It's to make a contribution. So that's what we hope the vibe from the book is. The exercises are designed to not be about your story. I'm writing my story. I have a story in my heart. This is the story I want to write. We want you to learn the concepts and the craft and the skills. And so we've used hypothetical examples in our exercises because we just want you to learn whatever aspect of craft we've just been learning about. So whether it's voice, whether it's dialogue, whether it's stakes or motivation or whatever, 
we want you to get it. And I think that with our own stories, especially when we're beginning, we're so tied to this is what I had in mind. This is what I want to do. I'm not willing to think outside of that. And we just want you to learn. And speaking of the voice that you use, I just have to call out one line because it really cracked me up. Accept the cold, hard truth. You want to write backstory and flashbacks more than your readers want to read them. Sorry, not sorry. So true. We all so have true. been there. So true. <laughs> it's amazing that you can write three chapters of backstory and then start your book on chapter four. But it's so common. So this has been fabulous. And we could talk to you all day long. We really could, but we do try to keep our podcast down to a listenable size. And we need to wrap up. But before we go, we're going to do what we always do. We're going to ask you for some actionable items for our listeners. Well, first I would say humbly buy our book. I think it will help if you're starting your journey. If you've already started your journey and you've hit a snag, buy the book. It's on Amazon. It's on Ingram and just read and enjoy. And then I guess that would be the other thing is to read as many mentor texts in your category that have been published in the last three years. And in the book, we specifically say this is that we really recommend following debut authors. Nowadays, there are debut author groups. Seems like there are sometimes multiple debut author groups for each year. For last year, this year, next year, Google the current year and debut author groups for your category. They have websites, they have blogs, they have social media. Check out their books, see if there's something you'd like to read. Register on NetGalley, see if you can get an advanced reader copy of a book that might be interesting to you. Read their interviews that they're doing. They're all doing promotion. See what you can learn from them. And the reason we suggest debut authors is those are the people who've broken through the competition in today's marketplace. They are usually not celebrities. They didn't have platforms. They're not already award-winning authors. And they did exactly what you want to do. So see what you can learn from them. And then the other action item that I would say, because I really also love the motivation side of teaching. It's not just about learning skills, but also about, let's face it, we all get in our own way sometimes. We all have doubts. We all have frustrations. And so I would suggest writing a letter to yourself. I've actually done this. Just be really honest. Why do you want to write Kidlet? What's important to you? Why do you want to do this? And then also your strengths. What do you feel you're good at? Remind yourself of your positives. Then be honest about what some of your weaknesses are. Maybe there are some skills that you just really need to work on. You've heard it over and over again in feedback. Or maybe you lack support. Maybe you really just need a good support system. Or maybe you are your own antagonist. Your self-doubt is getting in the way, or maybe you're putting up obstacles. Brainstorm how you could get over that weakness. What could you do to change that? And then set a goal for yourself to do it. Maybe think of a reward you could give yourself at the end for doing that and be kind to yourself. I think that that emotional part of a writer's journey is equally as important as putting in all of the work and practice and learning into writing your book. I, I love that you said that. And I know Christy's going to know what's coming out. I love knowing your why. It's such an important aspect of what I feel in the world. 
knowing our why. And we ask that question of all of our clients, why you, why now, why this book? We ask why a lot. So I love that you started with that, but I also like that you talked about the strengths and weaknesses for my actionable item. What I would like, and I'm going to shamelessly steal this out of your book. It's one of the exercises that you have in your book, and it is taking a current newer published book and an older published book. And I think in the example that I saw, you were mostly talking about picture books. You could do this with chapter books. You could do this with middle and you put them side by side and you look at them and you look at what the differences are, the older versus newer, and maybe try and suss out why an older book might not get published today. And I think I took two of your exercises and kind of squished them together, but I think it's such a great way to look at what's going on in the publishing industry and where we might want to set our targets. I, I love that. When I was in my MFA program, Anita Sylvie was one of my professors and that was our project for the semester was to take an older book that had been published and write an editorial letter to the author explaining what they need to do to bring their book up to date for today's marketplace. And I chose Lloyd Alexander and it was pretty fun telling him some of his phrases were outdated and (laughs) the way that he wrote things, but I think that's a great exercise. So for my action item, since we have such wonderful guests here with lovely books is an easy way for any of us to support our authors is to leave reviews. So I will go and leave a review for Writing Kidlet 101, a self-guided course after this, because I appreciated this. And even though it's called 101, I definitely think there are things in there that all of us can learn from. So thank you so much for sharing this wonderful book with us and for coming and talking to us because our why is showing people how Kidlet is different from adult books and why it's such a fabulous industry to be in. It's been great having you here. You've shared so much great information with our listeners. It's been fabulous. Where can our listeners find you? I'm at victoriajco.com. My last name is spelled C-O-E. I'm on Instagram and Twitter at victoriajco. Cheryl and I have a website for our business, which is called Write On Productions. It's W-R-I-T-E on productions.com. And Write On Productions is also on Instagram at Write On Productions. And I'm at CherylLawtonMalone.com and on Instagram at Cheryl.LawtonMalone and Twitter at Malone Lawton. It's a little confusing, but you can always reach me through my website. And we will have those in the show notes as well as a link to where they can get your book. And thank you again for being here. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having us. We're both so grateful to connect with both of you and to have this chance to have this wonderful conversation. Definitely. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Bye. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Coaching Kidlet, a writing and book coaching podcast for writers who want to level up their Kidlet writing game. For more about us and to discover what a book coach can do for you, check out coachingkidlet.com and follow us on social media.